This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Earlier this month, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued a draft guidance intended to help cut the cost and development time of rare disease therapies. The guidance focused on the potential to use multi-arm, multi-company trials as a way to reduce the total number of patients needed to evaluate experimental therapeutics targeting the same indication. We spoke to James Valentine, associate with the law firm Hyman, Phelps, and McNamara, about the draft guidance, how broadly applicable it might be and what it says about the direction of the FDA in terms of addressing issues of concern to the rare disease community. James, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. We're going to talk about the FDA's recently issued draft guidelines on pediatric rare disease trials using a collaborative approach and what this all means for addressing some of the challenges of rare disease clinical trials. Perhaps that we can begin with the challenges themselves. What are some of the things that make rare disease clinical trials so difficult? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, and there certainly are uh, a plethora of challenges in rare disease drug development. To name a few, uh, probably the the most well-recognized is the limited uh, population of patients affected with the, the disease or condition that might be eligible to participate in clinical trials, uh, which often, often uh, translate into the need to conduct smaller trials, uh, which, of course, uh, raise problems in being able to actually uh, observe benefits and make comparisons between groups studied in the trials. Um, but in addition, there's a number of kind of scientific challenges uh, that make even designing studies more difficult. Um, those include things like the natural history of the rare disease being poorly described. Uh, there's often a uh, broad range of ages and heterogeneity in how the disease presents. Um, even general knowledge about the underlying pathophysiology of the disease might be incomplete, uh, especially compared to more common diseases where there are certainly a, a larger amount of basic science research um, that is generally done. Um, I think the other thing that really uh, happens is, you know, because um, there's been less development in many rare diseases, uh, you see that there's uh, fewer um, well-developed assays to serve as biomarkers. Uh, you don't ha- maybe don't have ideal or any animal models uh, to first study products in. Uh, and then ultimately, when it comes to the clinic um, and studying drugs in humans, uh, you don't have those well-characterized efficacy endpoints. Uh, to help uh, appropriately measure benefit in the disease. 
What led the FDA to issue this new draft guidance? Is there some context you can offer to that, why, why they're coming now? Yeah, so, you know, this uh, particular draft guidance on pediatric rare diseases and the collaborative approach for drug development uh, came out of an FDA EMA document um, from 2014 um, that actually FDA and EMA recently updated this past July, um, which was really focused on um, ways to help make pediatric rare disease drug development a little easier and to share maybe some possible approaches um, uh, or solutions to doing so. Um, I think uh, kind of taking a step back, the, the broader context might be that um, many companies in uh, the rare disease space um, that are trying to uh, conduct clinical trials might, especially where there's, um, you know, some competition in the space and you know, multiple companies developing products at the same time, um, you know, what can happen is companies can actually run into trouble recruiting subjects for their studies. Uh, and so certainly the whole model of the um, multiple company uh, combined study design uh, would uh, allow for uh, ease of recruitment or certainly lower patient numbers total than if all of those were done as individual studies. Um, this whole uh, concept of the collaborative approach was something first done in oncology. And so you could see given this recruitment issue, um, this might just be the, the next natural place to transition. And are there specific problems that the FDA is trying to address with this guidance? Sure. I think, uh, in general, the, the focus on pediatric rare diseases here rather than even rare diseases more broadly is that there are always ethical considerations for conducting pediatric studies that is just different than conducting studies in adults. And there's a general presumption that we want to reduce the burden on patients, uh, pediatric patients, um, as much as possible when developing and uh, designing studies. Um, you know, also, as I mentioned, in rare diseases, you have a limited number of, of, of possible subjects. Um, some people have called this limited, quote-unquote, human capital available. Um, and so the collaborative study, um, you know, is certainly one way to, to help uh, get around that problem, but this guidance also talks about extrapolation um, of data from adults um, to make inferences about how the product will work in pediatric populations, and this also um, helps re reduce that burden in the number of pediatric uh, patients that might need to be studied. Uh, the guidelines spell out an approach using Gaucher disease as an example. What is the FDA suggesting here? Yeah, so I think uh, Gaucher's disease uh, is just a, um, from my take, it's just uh, a disease that has several characteristics that are common to many uh, pediatric rare diseases um, that, you know, I, I've seen uh, with development programs at the FDA. You have varied phenotypes uh, that have variation in severity across age ranges. Um, you have, um, this is, is not, certainly not the case for all rare diseases, but in this per, uh, particular case with Gaucher, as well as um, some other rare pediatric diseases, um, you do have a first treatment approved, um, and so there's a shifting unmet need for the first time in this rare population. Um, and uh, uh, very clearly, FDA lays out that there um, are some uh, areas where the natural history is only partly characterized. 
Um, and again, that being a, a common issue in um, rare diseases, um, this is something. This is an area where, um, through this collaborative approach, FDA sees an opportunity um, to perhaps um, increase the characterization of, of diseases outside of what's been characterized through previously conducted studies. How broadly applicable is this model in the rare disease world? Do you, do you often have multiple sponsors pursuing the same indications for rare disease today? Yeah, well, uh, in the majority of rare diseases, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we don't have multiple sponsors pursuing, uh, pursuing the same indication. Um, where I think what is unique about the Gaucher example and, and, you know, other, therefore makes it relevant to other diseases is where you do have, you know, a first approval of a product. Um, that often does lead then, uh, to kind of an increased interest by other drug developers in that particular disease. Um, so in that context, I think you do have multiple sponsors. Now, what I'm not sure about is, um, how often you'll have, you know, sponsors that are all at the same point in clinical development where they might be able to enter into this type of collaborative arrangement. Well, does this pose any issue for trial sponsors in terms of the way they would design a clinical trial where they have to, in essence, forge an agreement on design and endpoints and such with a competitor? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a very interesting question. So certainly this is an optional um, approach. Um, it's one approach um, that, say, if you are having recruitment issues or your particular di- you know, disease area as a whole, um, even all of your competitors are having um, recruitment issues, uh, then you might balance the efficiencies you know, of this approach as a trade-off for uh, what you were just mentioning in terms of uh, what might be some of the difficulties of trying to do a collaborative approach. Um, so certainly, you know, you might have, based off of your mechanism of action of your investigational product, some idea of how you might impact the disease, which would be different from other products that are in development. And so you might want to choose different endpoints that relate to how your product uh, would, uh, you know, uh, affect and hopefully benefit the patient population. Uh, so you could see some possible kind of tension there of what, um, in designing a protocol here in for Gaucher's disease, FDA lays out a number of what the endpoints might look like, but maybe for other diseases, um, you know, they're, they're, that would take some negotiating. Um, but kind of even more on a logistical, practical level, um, you're also going to have to agree on what your clinical tri- trial agreements will look like and how your CR, you know, what the CRO arrangement might be. Um, you know, and there might even be issues related to, you know, how are you going to handle things like uh, indemnification if there's a harm caused to a subject? Um, do you break that out by various sponsor and, the, uh, you know, whoever particular study drug they were on? Or, you know, how, how would that be managed um, across the different uh, collaborators? Well, one thing the draft guidance suggests is that trial designs may need to consider age-specific endpoints. Is this new thinking, or is this in line with what FDA has said previously? Yeah, so this is, uh, I don't really think this is new thinking. I think FDA is always um, interested in measuring those things that are, are most relevant to the patient population that you um, are hoping to have your product approved for. 
Um, and it's a little unclear exactly from the guidance. Um, this point is um, somewhat broad, so it's a little unclear on how FDA sees this actually um, playing out. What I think would be new um, is if FDA were to allow each age range, uh, based off of whatever is kind of the hallmark burden of the diseases in that age range, uh, to have a different uh, primary efficacy endpoint than the other age ranges, um, but allow that kind of collectively serve as the primary analysis. Um, so essentially you would have, you know, you know, we could just say three or four different age ranges, with each with, you know, their own different uh, primary endpoint on what the benefit of the product is, since there's heterogeneity across the age ranges. Um, and if FDA were to allow, um, you know, that type of study design, I think that would be new and uh, it's certainly something that sponsors should consider talking to FDA about. This is a draft guidance. What's the process going forward, and are there any concerns you expect to be raised by other patient groups or industry? Yeah, so, you know, I think the, the major point that might be raised, um, while nobody is, you know, this guidance does not, even if it were finalized, uh, does not mandate um, that any, you know, drug developer follow this model, um, but there are certainly real difficulties, some that I just previously mentioned in terms of how to actually um, administer this type of collaborative study design. Um, and so I think there could be some issues and questions raised about that, um, especially, you know, if particular sponsors, um, you know, might view this or their, their stakeholders might be, uh, be putting pressure on them to consider this type of study design. Um, you know, I think you know, another example that I haven't mentioned uh, that could come up is, you know, what if you have three companies in a space that do enter into a, a collaborative agreement and have this kind of study, and then there's a new entry into the space, another company, um, and those uh, three collaborators, you know, aren't interested in trying to figure out work uh, with this other company and, you know, complicate things in terms of trying to then modify other arrangements and the study protocol, um, you know, how how should that company proceed and, you know, what, how does FDA then view that company as a, a non-collaborator? How does this fit in with what the FDA is doing more broadly in terms of other recently issued guidelines and draft guidelines? And does it reflect any greater trend under Commissioner Scott Gottlieb? Yeah, so uh, to answer the first part of that question in terms of uh, what FDA is doing in, uh, more broadly uh, related to rare diseases. Certainly, FDA has got a, spent a lot of time thinking about the uh, issues that are specific to rare disease drug development. Uh, in fact, FDA in August of 2015 put out a draft guidance on uh, common issues in rare disease drug development. Um, in that guidance, you know, it more raised the issues than it did try to solve them. So perhaps this new uh, draft guidance uh, on these collaborative approaches is one way um, FDA is trying to help now um, propose solutions uh, to some of those issues. Uh, with regard to Commissioner Gottlieb, um, I'm not sure if this particular uh, guidance, since it has been um, part of a collaborative effort with EMA since, you know, before 2014, um, is a result of, of his leadership. But certainly, he has signaled um, his thinking about regulatory pathways that would be useful in rare diseases. 
for example, he recently testified uh, to Congress uh, on the implementation of the 21st Century Cures Act, where, among other things, he was talking about the use of accelerated approval pathway um, more broadly and uh, kind of focusing on one of the two ways to get accelerated approval, which is by using intermediate clinical endpoints rather than surrogates uh, in order to, to get approval. And that is certainly an area um, where, as I mentioned, you don't have well-established efficacy endpoints in rare diseases, uh, so perhaps exploring what might be, what, what might constitute an intermediate clinical endpoint would be valuable. Are there other things at the FDA that the rare disease community should be watching right now? Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, the agency is committed to um, putting forward more of its thinking uh, about rare disease clinical trials and rare disease drug development. Um, this here is just one step forward in that. Um, and so, you know, I think that just by putting forward this type of approach, while not uh, required, uh, helps make it more acceptable for consideration by industry. Um, but, you know, this is not uh, the only thing the rare disease community should be looking for. Uh, certainly, uh, for example, last month, FDA put out its comprehensive regenerative medicine policy. Um, we know uh, a very large portion of rare diseases are uh, caused uh, by uh, genetic reasons, and so uh, cell and gene therapy are certainly uh, the types of things that could add a lot of value um, to helping solve um, rare disease uh, issues. And uh, so I think that is an area where the rare disease community should be paying attention to what the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research is doing. Um, since they are separate from the Center for Drugs, the center that put out this draft guidance. Um, the other thing is, uh, outside of FDA, there's been discussions by some of the leading rare disease um, um, patient umbrella organizations, like the Every Life Foundation. And there's been some discussion about whether there might be an opportunity to establish a rare disease center of excellence, um, an organizational unit within FDA that crosses the, the three medical product centers in drugs, biologics, and devices um, to bring rare disease drug development expertise um, to all diseases kind of more uniformly and fairly. Uh, and so uh, I think those discussions are, are starting to happen with the agency, and so uh, the rare disease community should, should stay tuned and um, look forward to kind of weighing in on that potential opportunity. James Valentine, associate with the law firm Hyman, Phelps, and Magmara. James, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.